Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Norm Robillard. He is the founder of the Digestive Health Institute. He's a leading gut health expert, and you know, he turned his own suffering from chronic acid reflux into a mission to create the drug and antibiotic-free fast-track diet, and that's for functional gastrointestinal disorders, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, which is SIBO, and we hear a lot about that. Um, in the health community, and other related conditions. So we're going to get into everything regarding the gut today. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Al, and thanks for having me. So let's talk about your chronic journey, because you got here because you had to help yourself because no one else would, and uh, it sounds like you were sent down some wrong paths. So let's hear about what got you into this? Sure. And, you know, it's funny. I've read your story and I listened to your recent uh, interview with Mark Sisson, and it resonated with me because you mentioned, uh, you know, that you had some thyroid issues and you were dealing with doctors that didn't really understand. And some of the information they were working with may have been older information. And that resonated with me because I had a 15-year struggle with chronic acid reflux myself. So what was that like um, in terms of symptoms, like on your, what was your day like when you were suffering? Well, you know, and it was almost a daily problem, especially towards the end. Uh, I, I personally had, my biggest problem was, was heartburn, just that burning sensation behind the breastbone and some regurgitation. But I also had some uh, pretty uh, serious conditions at night. Once in a while, I would just get woken up in the middle of the night, coughing, thinking, you know, half dreaming that I was dying and then realizing that I had aspirated, you know, reflux into my lungs and I was choking and it was burning. And so that's at that point, it had become pretty serious. And uh, I just knew I had to do something, but I had no idea what to do. Um, I was probably in at that point when it got that bad, I was oh, in my mid 40s and I was just struggling with this thing. But I had never been on any kind of diet. I had no idea uh, if diet had any, anything to do with it. And doctors, of course, wanted to just prescribe proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers and these medicines. And they just weren't solving the problem for me. And just for, I want to interject, just for those listening, those medications are things that are what acid blockers, they're preventing you from producing more acid. Is that, that that's the philosophy behind those? Well, in, in a way, yes. H2 blockers, uh, those prevent the release of stomach acid into the stomach. And then proton pump inhibitors uh, actually re, uh, stop the production of stomach acid by these parietal cells in your stomach. So the the PPIs are the most invasive and they're the most powerful and long-lasting acid blockers. Yeah, so I was taking taking those and and they weren't working. Um, But you know, my uh, older son was an athletic trainer and suggested that I go uh, join him on a low-carbohydrate diet, lose a little weight, buy a treadmill, and I said, why not? We, I was living uh, not far from where you are now. I was living in Thousand Oaks. I was working uh, at Amgen, uh, busy job. But I decided, yeah, let's try it. Let's go on this diet. And I bought Protein Power, book by uh, Dr. Michael Leeds, who's also in the neighborhood. And uh, But what stunned me was, that, forget about weight loss, within two days, my acid reflux was gone. 
And I was just shocked. Now, isn't that fascinating? Two days. I was just shocked. You know, how could this not be, you know, on the front page of the newspaper and, and magazines that, you know, hey, go on a low-carb diet to help your heartburn. Uh, so I was just mesmerized by this. So I started doing a little reading about that. And it turns out that uh, some of the guys down at Duke University had done a small pilot study. Um, I've talked to Will Yancey and some of the authors of that uh, early work. And in fact, they had rounded up some people with heartburn from their cafeteria to do this study. Um, but they found also cutting carbs really did seem to mitigate you know, acid reflux. But I wasn't happy stopping there. In fact, even in Michael Eads, you know, in Mary Dan Eads' book, Protein Power, they mentioned that they had recommended that to their uh, patients when they had a medical practice to go on a low-carb diet to help their heartburn. So um, I knew there was something to it, and a lot of people were saying the same thing, but I wanted to know why. You know, why? When I started reading about research on what caused acid reflux, it was all about this, uh, these lower sphincter muscles, the, the lower esophageal sphincter muscles on top of the stomach. 50 years of research like to your point about doctors with antiquated information, the whole idea was that these muscles were spontaneously relaxing in response to alcohol or trigger foods or coffee. And it was based on this type of test they do called manometry, where they put a pressure-sensitive tube through these lower esophageal sphincter muscles. It goes down your nose, through your nose, down your esophagus, through the sphincter muscles, and then they measure the, press, the pressure that these muscles create. And they know that people with reflux, it does look like it spontaneously relaxes. And the timing of that can be uh, shown to be exactly the same time that people are refluxing. So it seemed like an open and shut case. And so nobody questioned it. And they just kept measuring it in 50,000 different ways, but nobody questioned the underlying idea. But when I started reading about uh, digestion, because I wanted to know if, if you take away carbs, take it out of the equation, are, are carbohydrates somehow causing reflux? So that question had never really been asked. And, and if so, how? And this is why I think it was just dumb luck that I happened to be a microbiologist and I had grown and worked with a lot of these uh, intestinal bacteria, um, both as a graduate student, but also as a postdoctoral fellow at Tufts University in Boston, I was working with Bacteroides fragilis, one of the top you know, gut microbes. And so working with all these intestinal microbes, I knew, and, and we were growing them for all these different you know, things we were looking at, mostly genetics and studies we were doing, but I knew that they preferred carbohydrates as a fuel, and they produced a lot of gas. You know, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and of course, you've got those archaea organisms in the, gut, in the gut that produce methane. So I knew that once the food got to my intestines, if there was too much of it that wasn't absorbed, these carbs, into my bloodstream, too many carbs persisting in the intestine, they could fuel like a bloom or an overgrowth of bacteria that would produce a lot of gas. And I thought, what if the, uh, I'm malabsorbing carbs because I was eating a lot of them? It's fueling these blooms of gas-producing bacteria, and this gas pressure is building up in my small intestine, working its way into my stomach, intragastric pressure, and then that's driving the reflux the same as you would expect if you like dropped a Mentos candy into a bottle of Coke. 
And it was that simple. And so that was a new theory. It was a new way of looking at an old problem. And it turns out that there's a tremendous amount of evidence for that theory. You know, for instance, intragastric pressure. It's well studied. It's well known. People with GERD have a lot of this pressure in the stomach. So, and as I mentioned, I was working at Amgen at the time, very busy job. But at night, I was writing this little book on this theory because I just wanted to get this idea out there. And so this little self-published book called Heartburn Cured, I put it out and I sent it to Mike Eads because he had, you know, he had written about it. I had followed his diet. And we ended up becoming friends and he was very supportive of this idea and he bought into this theory. Um, but also, by the way, Mark Sisson reviewed that same book. and. He did. He wrote a Mark's Daily Apple article about it in, and, you know, right, in 2011. He and mentioned it's it. funny yeah. because, uh, you know, I was just kind of getting into this area of nutrition from all of this experience that I had. And uh, I went to my first ancestral health meeting. I don't know if it was 2011 or 12. I went to the 13 as well. But I bumped into him. But he was such a rock star that I was afraid to even talk to him about it. But I did. Mark, if you're out there, thanks for reviewing my uh, my first book. Uh, so that's where I got my start was really just this simple connection with carbs and reflux. And I didn't even know what SIBO was at the time. Honestly, I had no idea. Just wasn't really, you know, digestive health wasn't my field. Um, Let's define that because SIBO is a word that's thrown around. And, and you know, the statistics, and we'll go over that in a second, for some of these gut disorders is astounding in our country. Um, it's like hundreds of millions of people. So uh, now I had a friend who had a lot of issues, um, energy, got their thyroid screwed up. And when it came down to it, it was SIBO, a lot of it. And they also did a severe like industrial antibiotic round for that. And I know we'll get into that too, because I know you advocate, advocate diet over that. And so does the doctor on my book, or he'll advocate natural antibiotics before going into the, the severe ones. Um, but what is SIBO and, and what does it really have to do with gut health? Mm, sure, and I do look forward to talking about that thyroid connection. But just, you know, I guess a quick primer. What is SIBO? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so we we have a lot of bacteria in our intestines, right? But most of them are in our large intestine, right? That's a big, that's our fermenter where we f ferment most of these carbs. It's like 100 trillion of these bacteria from hundreds of different species and, and, and many more hundreds of, of substrains of those species. So it's very diverse. They're processing these carbohydrates that we don't digest. Fibers, resistant starch. If you're lactose intolerance, is going to be lactose there. Um, a lot of the fructose we don't absorb fully. And so these bacteria ferment, that's the word for them metabolizing these carbohydrates in the absence of oxygen, right? There's almost no oxygen in the gut. And so they're metabolizing these carbohydrates and they produce these end products. We talked about the gases, carbon dioxide, hydrogen, these archaea organisms producing methane, but they also produce acids, short chain fatty acids, lactate, acetate, butyrate, propionate, and so forth. And these are fats, and these fats can nourish us. So there's a survival advantage, and it's why all animals, not just humans, have these bacteria in their intestines. If, you, if times are lean and you can't make a kill and you have to forage around and, and eat some roots and plants, you know, even if you can't digest all of those carbohydrates, your microbes can, 
and they produce the fat. And so it allowed it allowed us to survive many of these, you know, otherwise situations where we'd be starving to death. So but here's where the problem comes up. Right. In the small intestine, there's very few bacteria. And most of those are towards the end of the small intestine, the ileum, near the cecum, near where the, the large intestine begins. In the early part of the small intestine, there's, in a healthy person, there's almost no bacteria there. And there's a reason for that. And that's because that's where the food is coming from your stomach into your duodenum, the first part of your small intestine. And that's where our own critical digestive machinery is, villi and microvilli. And then our body's producing enzymes from the pancreas and, and bile to help digest fat. So all of this is going on. Human digestion is occurring. And it's the final breakdown of, a, of a carbohydrates we can digest. And uh, proteins in the form of amino acids and fats are being broken down to fatty acids. And that's where they're being absorbed via these microvilli into the bloodstream. And so imagine if you had a lot of bacteria there, they would really gunk things up. You know, all these, you know, they produce toxins, they produce these, uh, these acids. And most importantly, probably, is the fact that they produce proteases. Bacteria are, are also foraging for nitrogen sources themselves. And so they get that from the amino acids and proteins, right? And about 20% of our protein is also not absorbed, which feeds these bacteria their nitrogen source. So they're trying to break down proteins. Well, what other proteins are there? Well, it turns out on the tips of these microvilli, there are all these little enzymes, sucrase and maltase, and, the, and they complete the digestion of complex carbs, the ones that we can digest. And so imagine these bacteria, the proteases stop breaking down those enzymes on the tips of the microvilli, and then you can't digest and absorb your food correctly, and it results in more malabsorption, which feeds more bacteria, and the more bacteria create more damage, it's... Uh, you know, the, in the words of Elaine Gottschall, who wrote Breaking the Vicious Cycle, it is this cycle of malabsorption, bacterial overgrowth, and, and more damage that just keeps replaying itself over and over and over. And so that's essentially, you know, what SIBO is. And you mentioned in your, in your book how some of these gut situations, when gone out of control and gotten to a certain point, can actually inhibit then the way you even, like you might get to a point where you're enable to process fat properly, correct? So it's not like that it just causes some uncomfort and some issues, right? It can then lead to that. It, it can. And, you know, there can be a number of problems. If you have a lot of bacteria in, in the upper part of your small intestine, it can potentially affect your gallbladder where your bile is released. Um, but also, you know, the bacteria that normally reside in our small intestine, so there's some strep, there's some staph, there's a lot of lactobacilli, you know, uh, lactic acid bacteria, um, acidophilus, thermophilus, all these different, you know, bacteria that are supposed to be in the small intestine and help keep the other organisms at bay. And they play nice. But some of the, when you have SIBO, and, and uh, there's not a lot of studies where they've cultured this, but these bacteria, but in some studies, they have sampled and cultured the bacteria that are there in the small intestine and SIBO. And many of those bacteria come from the large intestine. So they're in the wrong place, and there's too many of them. And some of those bacteria, they don't know how to play nice with bile. Uh, so uh, bile is something released from the gallbladder, helps us digest fats. Uh, and then it, there, 
bile is reabsorbed. 95% or more of it is reabsorbed before the end of the small intestine. So large bowel bacteria don't see bile. But when they're in the small intestine, some of these bacteria can deconjugate the bile. And therefore, it's not going to be effective for digesting fats. So for a variety of reasons, you can have some fat malabsorption where you're not digesting, breaking down and absorbing fats correctly. And uh, so people that have that, you know, if you have uh, overt fat malabsorption, I mean, the, it affects the stools. They kind of be they're stinky, more odorous. You can even get kind of some oil in the in the toilet, an oily sheen, and so forth. So those are signs of overt fat malabsorption. But I think the mistake some people make is when they see that they're like, okay, I can't have any more fat. But that's not an approach that I would recommend. And, and here's why. Even though, yes, the problem at hand is you're malabsorbing fat, but you're doing it because of these bacteria that, that deconjugate bile are up in the, small, uh, in the small intestine. And since the bacteria don't gain much energy from fats because uh, you need oxygen to break down these long fatty acid side chains, so separate story, but bacteria in the gut can't get their energy from fats, but they do get it and can get it from carbohydrates. So my approach would be, you know, okay, we need to watch the fats a little bit and maybe, you know, throw in some coconut oil, which is much easier to absorb. It doesn't require bile because it's a medium chain triglyceride. Watch the fats a little bit, but you know what? Really cut back on the carbs because we need to do everything we can. And there's a whole lot of strategies to do that, to get these counts in the, of bacteria in the small intestine much lower, clear out these bacteria, and then you won't be deconjugating these bile acids. You know, everybody uh, can use a fast-track diet reset because some of the t statistics in your book are uh, staggering. You know, aside from 24 million people having autoimmune diseases, we're looking at um, 60 million people dealing with acid reflux and 50 million with irritable bowel syndrome. And um, it's interesting because, you know, watching any kind of TV here, you'd think that everybody has eczema, type 2 diabetes, or acid reflux, or IBS, because that's what all the commercials are now. And obviously, there's an increase, or there wouldn't be that uh, mass marketing. So I, I guess for people listening, are there any, I mean, obviously, issues with gas, bloating, um, bowels that don't look right, um, you know, running to the bathroom. And I think we can all look at those and go, all right, we'd be able to tell if something was off with our gut. What are some sneaky ones where someone might not be able to visually like, you know, look in the toilet and go, uh oh, that, that didn't look right. You know, so what are some sneaky symptoms that might not have, you know, do, does everyone always get the classic bowel stuff or is there some sneaker symptoms? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question and, and encompasses a lot of areas. Um, I think one of those is LPR, laryngopharyngeal reflux. So, you know, in my case, my symptoms, as I told you, were, was just outright heartburn and then aspiration into my, my lungs. Um, but there are a lot of people out there with this LPR. And that's where some component or components of reflux and whether it's overt regurgitation of this material up into the throat and beyond, or even uh, even like an aerosol of it from reflux. But this reflux material is getting up into the throat, the airways, the sinuses, eustachian tubes, and as I mentioned in my case, even made it into my lungs. Um, and the treatment for that, the current standard treatment right now, if you just went to your doctor or an ENT for LPR, is they're going to give you proton pump inhibitors. 
which to me is shocking that that's, they're still being prescribed because there are many studies showing that, that PPIs do not work for LPR. They don't. And there's even a, a recent large meta-analysis where they took all these studies, pulled them all together. They don't work any better than placebo for LPR. And, but I think it shows that when you don't understand the root cause of something, that, it, that you, you grapple with what do you tell a patient or what do you prescribe or give a patient. And so doctors, I think they, they're at a loss a little bit. Well, and I guess they're at a loss because they know nothing of nutrition. And, you know, it's like we talk about in my book. You go to a doctor, you're asking for a prescription or surgery at the end of the day, unless you're going to an integrative physician, someone who's a functional medicine doctor who's going to look at the other, the other um, you know, I remember uh, many years ago, my father had uh, gotten towards type 2 diabetes. Things looked bad. He went into the office. They said, hey, this doesn't look good. Here's a pill. And he said, well, isn't there anything else I can do? And diet, anything? And they're like, no, just take this pill and come back and whatever. And he had at that point learned about primal paleo low carb. And uh, he was so angry at that experience because he knew that that was a lie. Do you know what I mean? There was something he could do other than take that pill. And he knew that that doctor was just, and that's so horrific, isn't it? That there's an option where you could say, well, listen, you know, you can reduce your carbo, you know, a carb intake to this much and, you know, try that for a few weeks, come back, get retested and let's see. And then we won't have to put you on the pill, you know, but there's no avenue. So if you're not educated or you're not looking and delving into your own topic, you're just going to trust a doctor, right? Mm. Well, you know, and, and in defense of doctors, I mean, we have a model that might need tweak, right? Where, where doctors practice medicine. Things that make it through these clinical hurdles and clinical studies and get published, that's what the doctors will, okay, I have proof, now I can pull the trigger and use it. Um, and so with drug development, there's a lot of money behind that, and so those studies get done. And so you can see why doctors now have an opportunity to prescribe this medicine, and we have the studies, and blah, blah, blah. But with diet, it is more challenging. You know, We did a first uh, clinical study on the fast-track diet uh, several years ago, and um, I still need to tweak that and, and see if I can get it published. Initially, I, uh, I wasn't able to publish it with one journal I wanted to put it in. They thought it was too long. It was too complex. Well, yes, it's a new theory. It's a completely new idea. It is, there is a story to it. And also, I don't think they liked that I was kind of slamming the, you know, the proton pump inhibitors in the article. So I need to tweak that, get it resubmitted. But we're in a much larger collaborative study now on the diet. And it does. It takes money and effort and perseverance, and it's not a billion-dollar drug. So where does that money come from? So you need to find – You know, uh, uh, luckily in my case, I, I have, I'm surrounded by some people that are passionate about the diet, and some of those have been uh, – people have been helping. And so uh, – but you by hook or by crook, you have to do your best to get these studies done. And so you can say, okay, you can put this on the hospital formulary. Here's why. Here's a study. Here's a publication. So I'm taking some of that on you know, myself for, for what we need to do. But there are – but you can also look at studies that are out there and already published, but you have to read between the lines a little bit. Like let's go back to that LPR example for a minute. And it was the same with asthma, right? Asthma is very, very similar. There's a connection between reflux and asthma in the lungs. And they, they know that because 80% of children that have asthma have chronic acid reflux. There's no question there's a connection. But the drug companies took that and they said, ha-ha, well, if asthma is uh, related to reflux and maybe reflux is causing asthma, all we need to do is give these kids Nexium and they should be fine. And so there was a huge study called the SARA study. 
in something like 100 centers all over the U.S., all these kids with asthma, 1,000 kids. And uh, I'm sorry, 1,000 kids. I don't know if it was 100 centers, but in centers all over the U.S., 1,000 kids with, with asthma, they gave them Nexium, and it did not matter. It didn't help. So, okay, don't give kids with asthma uh, PPIs. But they concluded from this wrongly, and there were over 100 authors on this paper. They concluded – because Nexium doesn't help asthma, acid reflux must not cause asthma. And that was just so wrong. All they proved was that the acid component wasn't doing it or wasn't enough. But if you look at studies that have used fundoplication operations in people that have asthma, that's the operation where they surgically tighten this, these LES muscles on top of the stomach. Those do help with asthma. And you can reduce the medicine usage. So we know that there is this connection with reflux. And so what you need to do is actually control the reflux. And so it's the same logic with LPR. So I deal with a lot of these people in, in my consultation practice uh, because they're just not getting well with the current you know, advice that's out there. So I tell them, look, this is a subtle irritation, chronic cough, sore throat. A lump in the throat, you know, sometimes sinus issues, all of this stuff. It's 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 really hard on people's day to day life with this condition, and so I said it's it is a subtle irritation, but it's it it will take some time to heal. But you have to be very diligent on in in this case the fast track diet to really stop the reflux. You have to stop. You have to put your bacteria in your gut on a on a Weight Watchers program. It's a Weight Watchers program for bacteria. And you have to cut these fermentable carbohydrates, lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fiber, and this all how many kinds of fiber are there? Yeah, you know, you, you say fibers you say fiber's not good for your gut health and why. Now, you know, it's interesting because I am so tired of hearing this game with everyone going, Well, but don't you need the fiber? I have to have oatmeal, right? Don't you have fiber or cholesterol? And you know, we know that you get so much more for your money with vegetables. But then there's the other spectrum too, where people I think feel like they have to get every color of the rainbow in on every meal and then they overeat even vegetables and that can cause bloating and gas as well. So what foods right away, if we're having some issues, what foods are problematic and why so that we can get alerted to maybe reducing those if we're having issues? Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And by the way, on on your site, um, Mark's Daily Apple or the, or the um, podcast site you have, I forget where I saw it, but I saw a table of uh, you know Mark's Daily Apple shopping list for foods, and when I was looking at that, I was amazed at how closely that resembled. If I put together a shopping list for the fast track diet, um, because it is, it's all about um, any kind of animal based foods, fish and seafood. They're all zero points in in the fast track diet system. There's zero points you can eat as much as you like. <laughs> and then green leafy vegetables, you know, very low in these fermentation potential points. And so you can eat all you can. And then even on his list, he said, and occasionally, and he had things like uh, sweet potato and some of the starchier foods. And again, in the fast track diet, the starchy foods are the ones that you do need to watch out for. Now, using this FP calculation, and we haven't really talked about that, but it's a calculation based on the glycemic index, which is a measure of how quickly carbohydrates go into the bloodstream. I turn that equation around to measure how likely carbs in any specific type of food are going to persist 
in the uh, intestines. And so essentially, it's a quantitative way to measure how many of these carbs like lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols are going to persist in the small intestine. So it's all about these FP points. And But when you talk about the starches, it, it is interesting that there is a difference. First of all, I do recommend lower carb diets overall, even when we offer uh, some recipes that have starch in them. It might be like a half a cup of rice, and that's just for people that don't have blood sugar issues and they can tolerate some carbs. But it would be a very specific type of rice. Like, for instance, if you just look at the glycemic index of basmati rice and compare it to jasmine rice, it's completely different. Basmati rice is- Basmati is lower? Oh, yeah. has a glycemic index of uh, somewhere between 50 and 60, right? And people that advocate low GI diets would say, well, that's good. Stick with the basmati. Well, I'm saying if you, if you don't have any gut issues and you want to eat basmati, go for it. But if you have digestive health issues, you would be much better off with a small serving of jasmine rice instead of basmati rice because the glycemic index of jasmine rice is over 90, and so that means that very few of the carbohydrates are persisting in the small intestine because they're being absorbed into the bloodstream. Whereas the basmati, many more of those uh, glucose molecules are going to persist uh, in, in the form of resistant starch in your small intestine because of this lower GI. So a lower GI means a higher FP. And a higher FP is a lower GI. And it's the nature of the starch molecules. Uh, Uncle Ben's white rice, basmati rice, wild rice, they have more of a starch called amylose in them. And that's the resist, the more resistant starch. It's a linear molecule. It's hard to digest. Whereas uh, jasmine rice, sushi rice, uh, the higher GI rices with a lower FP, they almost exclusively, in fact, Sushi rice is 100% of a different kind of starch, amylopectin, which is branched, light and fluffy and easy to digest with the enzyme amylase. So it's much less likely to provoke these kinds of, uh, of functional GI symptoms. And of course, it you know behaviors come into it too. If you eat slowly and chew your food really well, you'll give the amylase in your saliva a better chance of digesting starches, both types of starches. And that's why that's one of the you know behaviors I recommend for people too that are having trouble with starches. And not everybody does. It depends on where your ancestors come from. You know, we know that gene copy number for salivary amylase, the enzyme in your saliva that helps you digest starch, the gene copy number varies quite a bit person to person. And unfortunately, there's no commercial test available for people to just run down to the doctor and get right now, but there will be soon, I'm sure. Uh, but the, the gene copy number varies. Some people, 60% of the saliva is amylase enzyme. Other people, they may only have one or two gene copies, and they don't digest starch well, and people with high gene copy numbers do. And what's interesting is they manage their blood sugar better as well. So it's almost like they've evolved to be better starch eaters. And, uh, you know, Mike, uh, Dr. Mike Russo out there in uh, California, Walnut Creek, he's coming out with a book um, soon. I was listening to one of his uh, uh, podcasts and, and talking to him recently. In fact, look forward to getting a, a copy of his book where he's actually getting into that a little bit, dif- people in different parts of the world and what their diet looks like and why kind of an evolutionary approach to looking at, you know, diet based on location. Right. And we also know, too, that sometimes um, Scandinavian people with Scandinavian genetics are able to process dairy a little bit better than others. So um, just really depends. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, so let me so let me ask you this. Let's say 
you've discovered via experience that maybe you don't process starch that well. Is that a reason to eliminate it from life? Or could you hack it and take a digestive enzyme before you eat such a thing? Would that be a proper hack? Or would it be don't bother anyway, because your body sort of naturally doesn't want you to eat it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, it's a great question. And it, it really depends on who you are. You know, are you a cob loading athlete? Uh, are you somebody like myself, um, who works at a computer a lot and and frankly, doesn't get as much exercise as I need. So I tend to be, you know, lower carb just for my own health and weight issues. Um, but some people can consume more carbs, but they have the digestive problem. In that case, I think behaviors, you know, are everything. And, and yes, supplements, we'll get to that in a minute. But there's so many behaviors that can help you. How are you selecting your food? So are you selecting the lower FP versions of these starches? You know, some potatoes are lower FP, some are high for the same reason as the rices we talked about. Um, so you're selecting the lowest FP starches to begin with. And is your is your serving size you know, moderate, right? Like I recommend when people, even when people do consume these starches, have a half a cup you know the the uh, in the fast track diet. If you looked at the poke through the recipes, not not everybody uses a recipes, but if they do, there's a two week recipe plan in there. The the daily carbs in that meal plan come to about 75 grams a day. Um, I consume less. Some people consume more. If you had diabetes, maybe less is better, and so forth. You have to be responsible for your own blood sugar. But um, if you depending on how how many you're consuming, you still should watch the total amount. Uh, cook, if you cook, let's say rice, for instance, cook cook it with ample water and moisture so it comes out life, light and fluffy. You know, use a rice cooker because consistency is really important in minimizing resistant starch. Don't refrigerate it and eat the leftover starches. I know a lot of people do that on purpose. They want the resistant starch, which is fine if you don't have problems. If you do, Right. Or if you're in athletic endeavors, like you said, and, and that's a necessary move. Yeah. Right. But even people with uh, that are doing um, uh, a lot of uh, athletics, if they have heartburn and reflux and IBS, then they shouldn't do it either. Um, but you do have to you know, watch your blood sugar levels. Um, so there's all of these things you can do. Now, get to uh, digestive enzymes. Absolutely. Something like a good quality. Um, uh, you know, in fact, a lot of people won't need the protease and the lipase. You know, and a lot of these digestive enzymes, they're in competition with each other. So they have – yours has 10 enzymes. Ours has 12. Um, ours has, you know, the uh, fiber digesting enzymes. And well, why do you want to digest fiber so soon? Let your body – process that more slowly, you want that to be digested more in the large bowel. So why would you give somebody a supplement with fiber digesting enzymes? So a lot of times I'll recommend just an amylase enzyme alone without the all the other enzymes wrapped in there. If, you, if your issue is starch, focus on that. If, as you said, if you don't come from Northern Europe and you have a, uh, a lactose intolerance uh, and you still want to have uh, – uh, some milk products. First, I'd recommend uh, light or heavy cream, which are fairly low in lactose, anyways, or fermented dairy, um, a plain yogurt, for instance. You know, maybe sweetened with a little erythritol or something. You know, not the not the sugary stuff with all the fruit and berries in it. Um, or um, what's another low lactose dairy? Um, kefir. Oh, um, hard, uh, well-fermented cheeses. There's almost no sugar or lactose in those. Um, but if you do, yeah, by all means, take a lactase uh, enzyme supplement. There's no downside to taking a little amylase or a little uh, lactase. 
Let's uh, get into the role of thyroid and SIBO and digestive health. Um, I'd love to hear your, you know, analysis and perspective of it. I mean, we know that some of the conversion of T4 to T3 does happen in the gut, but then again, when gut issues are off, it can cause a host of other problems in the body that then will be antagonistic to thyroid too. And, you know, part of that could even be just simple inflammation with one of these things. But I'd love to hear what you have to say on this topic. Mm, sure. And, and uh, you know, I'm talking to the right person, too, because I just enjoyed I just read your very insightful book, The Paleothyroid Solution, by the way, which was awesome. And I really, uh, really learned a lot. Um, not only your story, your journey as well was just uh, an amazing piece of work. So I'd recommend that um, to people. You know, it's it's interesting with, you know, the thyroid gland and the adrenals and a lot of this endocrine stuff. You know, I was a little bit kind of hesitant to get into this thing, uh, you know, years ago. I was like, well, leave it to the, leave it to the doctors. It sounds complicated. <laughs> you know, but, well, you know, now saying leave it to the doctors seems like that's incompetent. <laughs> I know after reading your book, I'm like, that was a dumb thing to say. <laughs> so, um, but Here's what happened. You know, for the last three or four years, um, you know, I have built uh, a consulting uh, practice where I work with a lot of people with digestive health issues. And so many of these people had um, thyroid issues and, and in some cases, adrenal issues. And so I was really forced, you know, out of my box on this one. And I really, and so, um, you know, listening to your story, reading your book, and learning about. Uh, the thyroid and the adrenals in terms of gut health was was just a necessity for me. Um, and so there are some really, really interesting connections, not only about uh, the connection of uh, hypothyroidism with SIBO, that's a, quite a story in and of itself, but even just with processing the medicines that you take you know, how is this, you mentioned the conversion of T4 to T3 and just the absorption of, of um, the uh, thyroid hormones as well in the gut and what, what things impact that. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, so first of all, uh, about 10 years ago, there was this study, uh, people with autoimmune thyroiditis. Uh, they took 50 patients and they tested them for SIBO using uh, the glucose breath test. And they found that about half of these people um, had SIBO, which was just amazing when I read that. In fact, it's probably much higher than 50%, and here's why. Testing for SIBO with glucose is not a very sensitive test because glucose, it's absorbed very quickly into the bloodstream. So you're going to miss a lot of people that have SIBO, but maybe not right in the early part of the small intestine. Uh, if they did the same study using lactulose, which is a sugar that we don't digest, but the bacteria can ferment, I think those numbers would be higher. So right away, that's pretty amazing. So so this was, this was people with Hashimoto's, right? But half of them um, had SIBO. Well, why is that? And I think, you know, the, the, the main idea out there, and, and I'd like, you know, for you to weigh in on this too, is that it, it has to do with this slow GI motility, right? A lot of people with hypothyroidism suffer with constipation. That is like a number one horrific symptom of hypothyroidism is horrible constipation. Right. And, and guess what? I mean, slowed motility is a huge uh, risk factor for SIBO. Um, along with many others. But if you if things aren't moving well, right, and the bacteria has an opportunity, so it, 
the food isn't moving well, the bacteria is not moving much, you're pairing them together. So what are they going to do? They're going to sit there and ferment all of these carbohydrates. And that's a perfect recipe for SIBO and dysbiosis. Well, yeah, and I'd love to uh, wish we could know, and we probably don't. But if we went back to that study, I'd love to see what all of those people were eating. Because going back to the carbs and SIBO, particularly if you have Hashimoto's, we know for sure that gluten can trigger those antibodies. So, and if you can have a autoimmune response up to two months after ingesting gluten, and you know you even eat it once a week, so now you're not, you know, you're igniting two problems, aren't you? And you're igniting one problem like the SIBO that's going to even affect the Hashimoto's more. And again, now you're in a terrible cycle, aren't you? Right? So it's mm. so I, I'd feel like God. I'd love to know the diet of those people that were tested because such I, an awesome question. You know? And yeah, and offhand, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if it's uh, published in any of the notes um, along with that paper. But you know, I made a note that I'm going to go back and and have a closer look at that because that's a great question. Um, so yeah, so there's that, the motility and, and then, yeah, a lot of people with hypothyroid have SIBO and that's why I do a lot of people in my own consulting practice. That's where I was first exposed to that. And they're like, oh, by the way, yep, I'm taking thyroid hormones. I have hypothyroidism. Um, so there's another area that I wanted to touch on briefly as well. And that's this connection with low stomach acid, thyroid and low stomach acid, um, you know, there's there are many things that can cause low stomach acid: a prolonged uh, infection with H. pylori, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, taking PPIs. We talked about that one. All of those things can give you low stomach acid. But a big one in uh, people who have hypothyroidism is autoimmune atrophic gastritis. All right, and it's no surprise that people with one autoimmune condition likely and often have others, right? That's but right. it is known that um, about one-third of thyroid disease patients have parietal cell antibodies. And, and the parietal cell, as we discussed earlier, right, is this type of cell in the middle of your stomach that produces stomach acid. And so these PCAs, or parietal cell antibodies, are the main marker for autoimmune atrophic gastritis. So the condition results in little or no stomach acid. And so it's interesting that, that studies have also shown that hypothyroid patients with these PCA antibodies, guess what? They have higher levothyroxine, right, T4 requirements because they're not um, absorbing the medication as well. And, and whether that also, you had mentioned something about conversion between T4 and T3, whether that, I, I'm not sure. But um, patients with atrophic gastritis and especially atrophic gastritis who also were infected with H. pylori, they required 27 to 34 percent more thyroid medicine. And it was both, it, it, yeah, related to both T3 and T4, as I recall. Sure. And you know, it's interesting because uh, as you become fat adapted and you live a low carb life for a while, you become calorically efficient and you're able to eat way less than you once ate before and it fuels you just as good, if not better. The same kind of paradigm happens with thyroid. The more efficient you are, the more efficient your gut, fat adapted, everything's cleaned up, the less thyroid hormone you need to function. 
because it doesn't need to go over. You don't need an overload load of it to process all the carbs and the heavy stuff you're putting in. It's that also becomes more efficient. But you know, think about it. So a gut problem can actually cause a thyroid problem and vice versa. But the stomach acid thing's huge because this is why a lot of hypo patients are deficient in nutrients. So you don't produce enough stomach acid, right? It can't break down the food, the nutrients. Now you can't absorb it. And so that's why hypopatients are classically deficient in iron, vitamin D, B12, and all sorts of other things. It's because of that stomach acid. Mm. I mean, it, mm. it's more, you know, obviously it's a bunch of things, but that is one of the reasons why it's a classic thing that you're deficient in the, you know, it doesn't matter how much meat you eat mm. and you could be iron deficient. It doesn't matter, right? If you're not absorbing those nutrients. Um, so it's a, like a multi-pronged approach when you attack this. Yeah. That that is a great observation. And in fact, you know, it could be really the perfect storm for nutrient deficiencies because you've got your motility's off, your stomach acid is off, and you've got SIBO in many cases. Oh yeah, and you're craving carbohydrates because you have no <laughs> thyroid hormone yeah. to fuel you. So now your cortisol is pumping out, your adrenals are taking over, and look, at that point it's hard to control yes. Yes. one's willpower to eat. And then now you got candida. I mean, this is like uh, a multi-pronged nightmare. <laughs> right, I've right. been through you're, it myself right. too. There is a subset yeah. of SIBO patients with, with um, candida albicans. Yeah. Um, by the way, um, on a positive note, people that were treated with, for H. pylori, right? These are thyroid patients. Um, their um, amount of medicine could be reduced. Um, and there, and I, and I know you have some uh, some issues with using thyroid stimulating hormone as as a test, but in those cases, the TSH was reduced after the eradication of H. pylori. So, um, well, TSH being reduced is um, just one component of that picture, yes. right? So <laughs> we we don't want to, anyone to think that the TSH yes. as a, as a standalone is a proper test. But yes, if someone had a very high TSH, that would be the brain screaming to the thyroid gland, "Oh my gosh, this person's blood is low in thyroid hormones. You better wake up." So that wake up is the TSH, and if it's really high, it's saying your body's screaming for thyroid hormones. If they did a study where the TSH was really high, and then they cleaned up someone's diet and it got lower, then that does make sense. Mm. So in other words, more testing would probably be needed to really nail that down. But what their point was, yeah. was that getting rid of H. pylori improves how well you um, absorb this medicine. No question about it. And also low carb, paleo, primal, all of this stuff helps. I, I was once on 100 micrograms of T3. Then I went down to 50, cut it in half when I started to really clean up everything. And uh, now I'm at like 12.25, it's, it's, or like 15 micrograms, and it's, it, that's barely anything. My thyroid's mm. actually half mm. working again and, and came back after time. So I now need very little where before I needed a lot and I needed to fully replace and suppress my thyroid, where now my thyroid is, like I guess you could say in layman's terms, half working and I'm assisting in a little bit. That's a much different picture than being on 100 micrograms of T3. It's almost like you said before. It didn't matter how much I was pummeling myself. How well was that being absorbed and utilized? And it wasn't. And that's why I had to be on 100 micrograms. There, it makes mm. sense that over time, after cleaning all of these things up, looking at every functional possible angle I could, now I'm down to 15 micrograms. It's pretty wow. incredible. Um, wow. Congratulations, by the way. On and that. it doesn't, you know, some people, it doesn't matter. Some people have to be on high doses forever. It's not that high is worse or low is better. It's just that 
I've seen it personally happen to me. And that's been an interesting experience because clearly I've become more efficient. Um, and I had lots of gut issues and I had candida. And you know what? It really is a horrible thing when you feel like wherever you go, you have to hold in gas, that you have a distended stomach. Um, it's it's just such an awful feeling. And I remember at the time being like, what is, what's happening? You know, I didn't know back then what was going on. Mm, well, I can relate to that. You know, and it's really a horrible place to be because it's embarrassing. You don't want to go out. Every time you eat, you get gas. So then you don't really want to eat or, or you go out with people to eat. And then literally like you're holding it in, like that's stressful. Yeah. And by the way, I've heard that at one point you even were able to stop the medication completely for a time. I did. I did for six months. And I might even be able to completely in the future. I did it for the past uh, about five months. And it turned out I still had a reverse T3 uh, issue going on, which means my thyroid looked pretty damn 100% normal, except it wasn't converting. Mm. So Hmm. we looked at one last thing that affects that. And that was I had never done a heavy metals test. Turns out I had horrifically high mercury. Not surprised. I've been a lifelong sushi tuna eater. (laughs) Um, Totally not shocked by that. I also had a uh, amalgam filling in my mouth that I didn't realize I, that was still there. So literally two months ago, I uh, got the mercury filling removed and replaced. And I'm currently about three to four months in on a gentle uh, mercury detox using, you know, Pecticlear and modified citrus pectin and stuff like that. And so our thought is that I've gotten this low on the medication. We're removing the one last thing that could affect reverse T3, which is mercury and affects mitochondrial function. And maybe down the road, you know, I'll be able to get off of it completely. But the fact that it's come back full force-ish in so many ways is kind of a medical anomaly after 13 years of having one's thyroid in a coma, per se. Um, So it it also goes to show you you really can change over time. Your body regenerates every seven years, right? There's (laughs) there's ways to really uh, change it. And and just as an example, don't stop trying. Mm, Good point. Don't ever give up, right? I mean, had you given up, had you just listened to doctors, right? Where would you be? Mm, absolutely. So wh- why don't we tie this this piece up on thyroid, though, with, with a couple of recommendations, maybe put our heads yeah. together here. Um, and, and so the question came to my mind when I was looking into all of this stuff. And by the way, there's a GERD connection. People that are on omeprazole, there's your PPI, right? They had to increase their T4 doses, people that had hypothyroidism. So there, again, is that connection with low stomach acid, but this time uh, induced by by drugs, by PPI. So anyway, um, but I started wondering if, you know, this, it gets to this whole chicken or egg thing. You know, well, okay, we, we know all this stuff, but what happens when we treat this stuff? What's going to happen? How do we, you know, will treating hypothyroidism improve my motility? And will it improve my gastric acid? And will, will it resolve my SIBO if I have SIBO? And so, you know, there was a retrospective study that came out very recently. I, I, I don't know, this year maybe, um, that was a little disheartening. I didn't care for the study too much. It was, first of all, one of those observational kind of the retrospective. They look at the chart study of people that were getting tested for SIBO. Um, and they found that um, that hypothyroidism and uh, levoxy Levothyroxine, T4, Levothyroxine, therapy were both associated with SIBO, but because they found a stronger correlation with people taking the medicine, that they made a big point that that um, that you couldn't really do anything about it. And but yet, 
there was a study, a, a better study done a long time ago in 1984, but that literally found that this transit time, right, slow motility, you have long transit time. If your motility is normal, it's shorter, right? They found that transit time decreased significantly when hypothyroid patients received hormone replacement. So I think that's a much more powerful statement that if you if you can treat your hypothyroid condition, and, and I think people should get your book to see how to do it right, but if you can treat it effectively, you should improve and, and normalize your gut motility, which is the risk factor in constipation and SIBO. Um, There's so, no question about it, by the way. So thyroid hormone in and of itself is responsible for every metabolic process, right? And so if you're 96 degrees because you're hypothyroid and you're everything slow, sluggish, and also, right, we need a proper um, temperature environment for certain enzymes and processes to go to go on that can't happen then if you're 96 degrees and freezing and you're mm. hypothyroid, you're, you're never going to get out of that. You have to treat the thyroid thing. But here's the other side of it. So you can treat the thyroid thing, you can start to, but you have to also at the same time deal with gut stuff at the same time. Everything has to be dealt with at the same time. You have to support adrenals and you have to support gut health. And that's why we always say, look, you know, get with a probiotic pro pro program, switch it up every couple of months. Let's get rid of candida, really starve the sugar, um, you know, the candida. And because thyroid hormone in and of itself won't fix it completely. Mm. Sometimes, like if you just yeah. have crappy digestion and you're constipated and you catch hypothyroidism quickly and you're put on some good thyroid hormone and you've got a good baseline already, it's going to receive it well and you'll start pooping again and life's going to be great. But if you've been undiagnosed for a while and you have a slew of symptoms like I did, like 30, you know, you can start taking the thyroid hormone, you will feel better, your temperature will raise and you will start to go poop again. But that doesn't necessarily clean up everything. Mm. And then that could come back to haunt you. So if you don't get rid of that candida, but you're like, oh, I'm feeling better on this thyroid hormone, your gut gets a little better, things are moving, but let's say you still have some SIBO or other issues going on like candida, then they'll rear its head and now you're going to crave stuff and now you're back into a... It doesn't matter then if you're on the thyroid hormone, right? Because And so then that also could then lead to the stuff you've been taking Mm -hmm. to then backfire later. Mm. You you know, what Mm. a vicious... I know. So you got to... Gut has to be number one for everybody, uh, regardless of hypothyroidism. In fact, you know, uh, some maybe some other time, we should probably also hit on Addison's disease one of these days, even though it's a, a little more rare. I mean, adrenal problems are big. And, you know, even though it hasn't been studied recently, uh, there's some landmark studies from the 60s that show that half, and it's just like uh, hypothyroid, half of Addison's disease patients have what? Hypochlorhydria or achlorhydria, low stomach acid. I mean, isn't that just fascinating? Well, and you know what's funny is that here's a false statement that I've heard that you will hear and you will read if you go research adrenal issues. They'll say, oh, if you have adrenal problems or blood sugar issues, make sure you eat before 10 a.m. Make sure that you eat steadily. Make sure that you eat carbs for your adrenals. So again, you know, that's a little bit of a false situation where then people are going down that road where they're like, oh, I need to eat carbs to support my adrenals. That's not how it works. It really isn't. But that is a false. I hear that a lot. Um, I know. Frequent small meals, they'll kill you. Right. Yeah. That's the worst (laughs) for your adrenals. It really is the worst for your adrenals. Um, Uh, So, but just, uh, and I think you summarize things 
pretty quick, but just to kind of help you wrap up that, what, what are the recommendations? So when you get these things together, SIBO and hypothyroid. So yes, uh, the obvious, right? Test for hypothyroidism if you don't know for sure. Test for SIBO if you don't know. But also don't forget to test for H. pylori. Really important because that is one of the leading causes of this atrophic gastritis. And I would add to that to consider the Heidelberg acid capsule test where they literally can see if your stomach can produce acid after a challenge with bicarb. Uh, very important. Um, and so if you do have H. pylori, that's one time when you really should just get on antibiotics. As much as I hate them and never recommend them, for that you should. Um, and then, of course, whenever you have one autoimmune condition, there's often more. So at, you have to ask questions and dig deeper. Um, like hypothyroidism, uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, found in 6 to 10% of patients with celiac disease and people with non-celiac gluten intolerance. Um, and it's especially common in people that actually have the genotype, you know, the HLA, DQ2, DQ8, the, the celiac uh, genetic markers. So um, just to give people a, a, you know, a little bit of a guideline of what are some steps you can take right away if you have these overlapping symptoms. Let's talk about fasting. It's popular in our community, of course, and um, I'm wondering what your thoughts on it are for gut health. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, and, and of course, you with your ancestral health background, I, I think you'll agree, right, is that we surely evolved with regular fasts, simply because of all of the problems we had back then, finding, getting food, uh, the seasonal nature of food, all kinds of variations in food availability. So I'm sure we just fasted all the time because we didn't always have a 7-Eleven next to us, right? Um, so, I mean, it's in general reading, I, I do think it's just important on so many levels. And it doesn't matter what area you look at. It seems to reduce inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, promotes fat metabolism, right? Shifting us into uh, ketosis, uh, helping even the brain, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, epilepsy. Um, a great uh, YouTube on this, Dr. Mark Matson, uh, National Institute of Aging. Uh, did a TED talk that's just phenomenal on that. Um, so it fits with the whole model of calorie restriction and longevity. Uh, you know, well known. Of course, unfortunately, a lot of these studies are, are, are done in animals. You know, it'd be great to have more more work done in people. I'll volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I will too. But I can't. I've already been my own experiment. I, I'm happy to be a part. I of eat two meals a day, so I think I'm fasting every day. Um, but you know, fasting in uh, in humans, those studies are, are limited. And also, in what's the effect of fasting on human micro um, uh, gut microbiological populations as well? They're limited. But uh, one woman kind of broke the mold there. Her name is Marlene Riemley, Austrian researcher, published a, a little pilot study in 2015. And she found uh, an increase in microbiota diversity after fasting. Um, and she also found that there was an increase in the abundance of some uh, kind of gut lining associated bacteria, the ones that are considered, you know, by by so many different studies to be gut healthy and important, like Fecalibacterium prausnitzii. Um, that's a Firmicutes type bacteria, important. It's a butyrate producer. It's anti-inflammatory. It's deficient in people that have uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So that went up. 
um, Acomantia mucinophila. Um, that's a type of bacteria that it feeds on what? Mucin and mucus. And when it feeds on that, your body makes more. So it's involved in gut lining integrity. So those two went up, which I think is really, you know, it's early work, but it's still kind of good news that, that less is less can be more, right? Um, so if you, and we're talking about autoimmune diseases and protecting against, you know, uh, intestinal permeability and leaky gut. Well, beef up these two guys with a little fasting and, and you're going to have a less leaky gut. I mean, that's what this preliminary work is showing us. Um, and, and there is, you know, this. And, you know, that makes sense. Have you heard you, if you listen to that interview with Mark and I, he mentioned this, and I know we'll be talking about this more. It just seems a little bit um, logical here, which is like that fasting and when you're not eating is really the time when you're living, right? That's life, your repair and rest, things are happening because the moment we do then enter food, it will shut down a cascade of certain hormones and things like that. And there's a benefit to wait um, so that that process can take place. And that seems to be the natural intuitive thing that you hear from people when they get fat adapted, they're extremely calorically efficient, they've been there a while, they're very intuitive, and they're going, how is this possible? How do I feel so amazing during this time when I'm not eating, and then I introduce the food, and I'm like, uh, you know what I mean? That maybe that's the and so that's kind of an interesting paradigm. And, um, you know, it's interesting too. I was speaking to someone last night who's a fellow health coach out there who's primal, and he was saying that he went off the rails because he went on a, a European trip and he overdid a bunch of stuff he doesn't normally eat. And he said, you know, I, uh, because I overdid it and I felt it and I had a lot of cider and beer and all sorts of stuff. He said, I, I just fasted for the three days, like from the plane ride home. And he said, I never felt better. And my digestion and what he saw in the toilet, you know, was incredible after that three day fast. It's like, he was like, that made so much sense. And it, to him and he didn't suffer through it because he was already previously fat adapted so that even though he had a carb crappy diet overload on his trip he was able to quickly rebound and i thought you know that's an interesting uh i like that strategy that he did that's kind of a good hack i think mm. and, and and i enjoyed that part of your discussion by the way and i i liked what mark was saying too about people saying how can i eat more and not gain weight how can i eat more and not gain weight instead of how can i eat less and that's what my approach is and, and in my consultation program too is across the board, whether you're talking about supplements or diet, less is more. But the other good point you brought up was this fat adaption. You can't jump from a high-carb diet and, and into fasting because guess what? You're going to be starving. You know, when I, when I have a high-carb meal, and, and I probably only recognize this because I don't eat that way a lot, but when I do have a, a bolus of carbs, four hours later, I am ravished. I just really want to eat something, and it's this, this crazy insulin cycle. And when you're on a higher-fat, lower-carb diet, it just evens things out so much more. And, and I think that's why it allows you to fast because you have – you know, you're, you're fat-adapted. And and you have a much more even keel when it comes to burning calories. So well, doesn't it make sense too that all? Well, it's so funny that all of this candida or uh, you know H. pylori or SIBO, uh, it's kind of an obvious connection. If because because protein and fat doesn't make those things get out of control. It doesn't. It just doesn't. Right. <laughs> So, yeah. so if we look at all the foods and the situation, the only things that actually really do feed into those problems are carbs, 
Now, granted, some worse than others, right? So leafy vegetables is not going to do it. But so it's just interesting that that particular food group is the one that says everything, right? It it does. And, and of course, you know, your bacteria are very um, adaptive, you know, and they will adapt to what you're consuming. Of course, they they can't process the side chains, the energy-rich side chains of fats, because you need beta oxidation. And just in the word, oxidation needs oxygen. So you don't have to worry about that. The only thing in fats that will feed bacteria is the little glycerol backbone of the molecule. It's a three-carbon sugar, half a sugar there. And that's not very much in the way of calories, even if they, they did consume that. So there's not much there for the bacteria in terms of energy. Uh, they do need have a nitrogen requirement, as we mentioned, uh, but they can get that either from certain amino acids from the proteins. You, you malabsorb a certain amount of your proteins, and that does feed and sustain the bacteria, but it's not a major energy source for them. And also, the other nitrogen source is on the tips of these mucin or mucus molecules in the gut called sialic acid. That's... Um, uh, that has not only carbohydrate but nitrogen. So there's a nitrogen source that naturally feeds your bacteria when we can't. Um, but you're right. The major source of, of the energy, even mucus, by the way, 80% carbohydrate. So the major source of, of that feeds gut bacteria is carbs in our diet or mucin when we are fasting and a little bit of protein. So uh, so you're right. And that's why it makes sense that when you look at these functional GI conditions that are all about gas, whether it's IBS or reflux based on my own theory of, of what causes reflux in the gas, um, all of these other connected um, SIBO conditions, including you know autoimmune and um, uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, all this restless leg, the one thing that does help these conditions is diets that limit fermentable carbs, whether you're talking about the fast-track diet, the elemental diet, you've got the FODMAP-specific carb diet. They have, what do they have in common? And they're limiting these fermentable carbs. And by the way, um, if anybody doesn't believe it or doesn't know why their doctor doesn't, doesn't suggest that, they should remind their doctor to um, – pick up a copy of the textbook of primary and acute care medicine, which he may have used in his training anyway, and turn to page 1193, the chapter on intestinal gas, and it will tell you what carbs to avoid if you don't want intestinal gas. What are they? Fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols. And those are the ones the fast-track diet focuses on. I'd love to be a fly on the wall on that appointment. Uh, hey, you need to go back to page 1193 of that textbook from 30 years ago, you moron. Can you go? Yeah. No, uh, no I mean, it's just, you know, it's easy to skip yeah. over some of that stuff, I think, because sure. people, you know, I think it's easy to forget that we can change our diet. But in that same chapter, though, here's what turned doctors off. Maybe there was the next sentence. They said, well, that wouldn't be a very palatable diet. <laughs> well, hold on. You know, you, yeah. you need to think about this in a way that's creative and you can make a great uh, diet out of that. Well, also, I love the judgment of whoever wrote that. Like, that's your own palate. That's exactly. your own judgment. Exactly. on the Like, I mean, who's to say what's palatable for someone? Well, I know. Um, it's like, yeah, they can't imagine life without legumes. <laughs> No, okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're like, oh, gosh, but don't recommend it because whoever wants to stop bread, don't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's so funny. So tell us, how can we, um, you know, your your book, The Fast Track Diet, has been endorsed by the New York Times bestselling co-author, Dr. Michael Eads, GI surgeon, Dr. Alan Hugh, many certified nutritionists and providers. Where can we get The Fast Track Diet? Sure. Well, um, obviously, all these books are for sale on Amazon, but they can, uh, if they want to get shipment, especially all over the world, they can go to digestivehealthinstitute.org. 
because we do ship all over the world there. They can find links to the Fast Track Diet mobile app. Uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about that today, but basically it, uh, it it has a calculator built in. It has 800 foods. It has voice recognition. You could be standing in the store and say carrot, and carrots will come up, and you'll see the FP points and carrots and say, okay, I can buy some, but not a lot. Oh, that's excellent. So they can uh, find all of that, access that from the digestivehealthinstitute.org. They can go to our Fast Track Diet official Facebook group and join that. We have about 6,500 people on there talking about uh, you know, helping each other. And Or they can just call us, 844-495-1151, and they can schedule uh, a consultation with me directly. Now, I want to ask you about that in a minute, but I just want to clear out because we've said the fast track diet. For people that are listening, it's T-R-A-C-T tracked, as in digestive tract, not T-R-A-C-K. So if you're, yes. this is not the fast track diet, like <laughs> running on a track. It's T-R-A-C-T, fast tracked diet. So yeah, how do you work with people? Do you work with people just over the phone? And, and how does how does that work? I do phone and, of course, international. We use Skype. Um, and, and that's our model at the moment. You know, the Digestive Health Institute is still a small um, company. And, uh, you know, one of these days, uh, I'd like a giant building with nurses running all over the place, but <laughs> one step at a time. One step at a time. Um, th- thank you so much for joining us. We will put all of the links to your book and your uh, website in our notes. But again, it's digestivehealthinstitute.org. And the book is called The Fast Tracked Diet. And thank you so much for joining us. All right, Elle, thanks for having me. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Bootcamp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made delicious paleo approved meals for the entire week paleocookingbootcamp.com this is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the bay area and now wherever you are whatever you're doing you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen even if you're not a big foodie even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes just push the play button and Katie will take you through the cooking course. It's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month and you will be dialed with your paleo meals. Just open up that refrigerator door. Imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items, dinner entrees, dessert treats even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out paleocookingbootcamp.com and enroll today. 